Witty, thought-provoking, and uplifting, Southern Soul Livestream is a program that you'll invite your friends over to watch every week where you'll learn about interesting guests and get to share in their fascinating experiences. Tune in each Thursday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern to connect with guests from across the generations and to laugh with our eclectic hosts who are as charming as they are talented. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here's our host, Calvin. I'm excited about tonight and for many reasons because, you know, we've been doing this thing for a good while. We are in season two. And I think I told you guys the story, right? Season one was about discovery. You know, we just kind of out there doing things and some kind of way we discovered a recipe that people like, right? Season two, that's 2002, was all about perfecting the recipe, you know, making that gumbo good, right? So now we're getting ready to go into season three. And as we go into season three, it's really about the next step, sustainability, I call it, also known as paying the bills. If you've been here for the last two weeks, the topics have been all about money, bills. But you know what? We don't just do this for us. We do it for you. Last week, we talked about funding your entrepreneurial startup in addition to uh, fundraising through giving circles. This week, we're going to talk about Getting started in franchise entrepreneurship, and I am so excited. So one thing you guys understand about entrepreneur, there happen to be people out there who, you know, you hustle, they hustle, they doing their thing, but there's rare opportunity that I run into somebody that I was like, you know what, they doing their thing. But I am excited tonight to have Miss Brittany Willis here tonight because not only is she a high flyer, Y'all know the qualifications to be a speaker on Southern Soul. You first must have, you know, be doing your thing, but you have to be community focused and extremely, extremely, extremely down to earth. And one thing I love about what Miss Brittany is doing is not only is she pioneering her own journey, she is making sure that she share the jewels of witness, of, uh, of experience and wisdom with you guys. Welcome, Brittany, tonight. How are you doing, lady? All right. No, I'm super excited. I'm hyped. I mean, I, if, if DJ is not your side gig, you should think about it. Like, this is awesome. So thanks for having me. Very, very kind words. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you for the encouragement because KDB hating on my DJ skills. So I appreciate <laughs> that somebody out there appreciate this. Yes. But, you know, I, I would like to, you know, I, I have a short um, bio of yours I want to read, but then I would like to hear from you to kind of describe who you are. Sure. So. Brittany Willis, MBA, is an accomplished sales executive and entrepreneur with more than a decade of business development experience. Her entrepreneurial journey was sparked by the realization that she was the common denominator in the success she brought to organizations like PepsiCo, Walmart, Amazon, Brittany made the bold decision to become a franchise owner of PJ's Coffee of New Orleans by opening the North Dallas location in February of 2021. Her work has already been featured on the Today Show, Forbes, Business Insider, Franchising USA, Dallas Media Outlets, NBC, DFW, WFAA, and everybody else, right? <laughs> Welcome, Brittany. What's up, girl? Hey, yes. Thank you, thank you. I'm so happy to be here. I'm excited. 
Awesome. Well, tell us, you know, we'd like to get started with just getting to know you. Tell us your mm. origin story. Like, who are you? What's your background? Where did you go to school? You know, have you always been an entrepreneur? Tell us about you. Yes. Okay. Where do I start? So I'm a proud New Orleans native. That's why not knowing what bounce music was hurt my heart, but 504, not changing my number. Let's go. So that's me. Um, and, you know, it was actually a really awesome full circle story. Um, during Katrina and my family, we actually, Dallas was the first place that we evacuated. We ended up settling in Houston and moving back home temporarily. But to have the full circle experience where I brought a little piece of New Orleans with me once I kind of found my way back to Dallas as an adult is has been awesome. Um, I can't tell my story without um, giving respect and honor to the women, the matriarchs in my family who, you know, when people look at me and they look at what I'm doing, I'm just like, I mean, do you see where I come from? You know, I mean, just some strong women who didn't know no, didn't know impossible, um, constantly showed and spoke light and life over me and my capabilities and reminded me that education and continually evolving and continually learning is your ticket to achieving your wildest dream. So I stand on their shoulders um, and, you know, I, I, I hope that they're proud of me and everything that I'm looking to do. I always say the baton is in my hands. It's a marathon. It's a marathon. And, and, you know, I'm looking to pass it on to the next generation. So that's a really big piece of that. Um, Vanderbilt University undergrad. So my fellow Commodore, what's up? Um, I got my MBA at the University of Arkansas when I was living in Bentonville, Arkansas, working on the Walmart account there. Um, and yeah, my husband and I and our furry friend, <laughs> we reside um, in Dallas. I've been here for about five or six years. And as you mentioned, spoiler alert, I'm a small business owner in the community. So that's just a little, little bit about me. <clears throat> awesome. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. You know, I was curious about that part of you. So it seems like you started out in New Orleans. And, uh -huh. and and due to a course correct, of course, being in Nashville, I must appreciate the 504. Uh -huh. I just forgot what they called it, right? But you know what? We got some 504 music tonight. Okay. So, you know, if you hang tight for that video segment, the 90s was good uh -huh. for 504 music. I just want to put that out there. Right, hot boys. <laughs> Oh, I'm sorry. What were you saying? I said hot boys. Hashtag hot boys. <laughs> also known as hot boys. Yeah. Tell me this, you know, in doing the things you're doing, are you following like your career path, like the career of your dream? Did you always know that you would be yeah. doing this? Right. Because you're not only, you know, still working a full time gig, but mm -hmm. you also have purchased and set up a franchise. Did you know mm -hmm. you'd always be doing this? Yeah, I think did I did I always I would say no. I think becoming an entrepreneur was something that I would say was always inside of me, dormant. Um, I'm a big believer that our life leaves breadcrumbs, and sometimes we recognize them, and sometimes they make sense when you turn around and look back. And so I was that 10, 11-year-old who had the lemonade stand, who was looking at the cost and the pricing. Like, it was always in me. I'm very much into the, the logistics. I'm in what I love about business is how do I take something and make an influence. I love, and with business development, I love the opportunity to say, hmm, this is untapped. And when I was younger, there was all these runners that would run down our street. And I was like, I bet they're thirsty. I bet if I put lemonade there, <laughs> they'll lemonade. And that's actually kind of the way I approached bringing my location to Dallas. You know, it was an area where when you looked at the radius, I was like, that's a gap. You know, coffee is just such an emerging trend in our lives. People drink more than three cups a day. It's a growing trend amongst millennials and Gen Z, which is what you want to see. You want to see that a product and its consumption is resonating with the youngest generations. And I was like, this is this geography is missing this. And so it's kind of funny that you're asking me that, Calvin, because I'm actually 
putting the two together <laughs> in terms of how that happened. But um, I definitely was always enterprising, but I'll be honest, I thought I would be somebody else's CEO. Um, and, you know, in the last three or four years, you know, clearly I had the capability to be my own. And so, um, you know, I love what I do in my career. Um, you know, I said on another podcast recently, I'm so much more fulfilled in my career because there was something I didn't know that was kind of lingering on my shoulder for a while. And it was because it was, again, what you kind of read it, it was, I'm the common denominator in every, in all the successes that I brought to these companies, these new brand launches, the negotiations, sitting across the table from retailers like Amazon and Walmart. That's not easy. And I said, if I can do that for someone else, I can do that for me. And so, you know, that was just, you know, that was one of the best decisions that I could have made for myself to essentially expand my portfolio. As I say, people are told to invest all the time, invest in yourself as well. So, but we can get more into that. Awesome. You know, thank you for sharing that. You know, you know, people who are here every week and we have a, you know, a good group, but they often hear me preach about my passion and my passion, my hope is that everyone in the black community, and I'm saying everyone gets a chance to start their own business, to be an entrepreneur. And people are like, yeah, whatever, you know, I got a different lifestyle, different risk averse. And they don't know why I say that, but you are a good example of that because you just kind of described, you said something was missing. I kind of felt something, right? Yeah. And this is the thing someone told me once, and I really, really believe it to be true. If you want to see or create change in your world, in your society, become a business owner. Mm -hmm. Yes. I love that. You know, yeah. and the next question kind of talks about that, right? Because yeah. you're out there, you're doing your thing, you're your own CEO, CEO. Mm -hmm. now have an opportunity to build your own dream team. Yeah. You know, what are your thoughts about creating a meaningful culture or surrounding yourself by people who represent the workplace values that are important to you in your personality? Yeah, um, I'm a big believer. This is in my career, but I'll speak most in my business, but it's applicable in both places. I'm a big believer in leave a place better than you found it. Um, and when I was opening my business, this was such a spiritual endeavor. I mean, you know, I was in the process of opening something at a time where things were closing. So it was nobody but God with me on puppet strings, telling me and guiding me and reminding me that despite whatever the happening was happening in the world, now is the time. And it was a, it was probably one of the, the deepest spiritual experiences I've had. And as I was going down this path, to the exact point you just made, Calvin, it was, I'm about to be in a position of supreme influence. And I said, God, please use me. Please use me. In, in any way that you see fit to impact these lives. And so I knew I was going to have a team of 10 to 15 people working for me. I knew that I'd have, I would have the opportunity to be developing lead, uh, leaders in the management staff that I have. Again, you know, I, I'm more of a, I'm not truly a passive franchise owner. I think I'm not in my operations day to day is what I'll say. And I knew I was going to have to pick, lead, coach, guide, and develop the management team to represent my interests and to run my business the way that it needs to be run when my when I'm not there. And so the biggest piece that you know that I would say is just respect. Um, I'm really big into respect and my team members knowing, you know, that you know, they call me Miss Brittany, I call them Miss Jane. You know, they I I don't really believe in the hierarchy. You know, I I try to, you know, I think obviously, yes, I'm the owner, that's great, but at the end of the day. You know, I will hop behind the counter and make a latte if I see there's a line. You know, there have been plenty of times I pull up to my store and I'm like, ooh, what's going on? I'm putting on an apron and knocking on some drinks 
while I'm dropping off something and, you know, I'm going. So it's, it, my team knows that I will roll my, my sleeves up. It really comes down to servant leadership. I think that is just the biggest piece that I bring to any team that I lead, to any team that I'm building a servant leadership. I believe that there's a time for you to lead from from the back, sure. You know, for example, I'm I'm stretching my current management team right now. I have to lead from the back. I have to get out of their way and let them make mistakes and let them learn and let them come to me with questions versus me proliferating them with answers. But most of the time, it's being in the trenches with your team. It's them knowing that when I need you, you're there. And so that is just the biggest part of the culture. I think that, you know, respect. Um, I tell them all the time, we 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 don't do, we we don't do disrespect here. We don't do like that is that is not tolerated. I we had parted ways with team members because their contributions or their attitudes were were toxic. And that's not the kind of space. I want people, I think we all know what it's like to get out of bed and go to a job and you've got that cloud over you because of the environment that it is. I don't want that at my coffee shop. And so when we we interview, there's there's specific questions that we ask to assess um, how well you handle chaos, how you handle conflict, how you navigate through. And in the initial trainings periods, we're looking, we're paying attention because I believe in creating a very safe and kind and warm environment um, in my in my shop. And what it all comes down to is, I, I was going to say these children, <laughs> but these they're, they're like 18, 19. But, um, you know, my, my baristas, I can't do this without them. And I think that, you know, it really saddens me to think at, to think of the ways that owners begin to detach themselves from their front line. There is no business. There is no PJ's Coffee on Midway Road in Dallas without each of those 15 people showing up for me every day. And it, I'm and I don't and I don't forget that. And you know, they're part of my journey as much as you see me here today. They're behind me, you know, executing every day. So, yes, it's it's being a leader that I would want on my team. It's servant leadership and pouring into them consistently and ensuring that we're creating and maintaining a culture that I would want to work in. Awesome. Thanks for sharing that. You know, that servant leadership is so real, right? And it goes back to that thing, you know, I could, I would see certain pictures of you working in the store and it reminded me of when I was at, I'm not IBM, um, Home Depot. Mm -hmm. At Home Depot, they have this rule that everybody, including the CEO or executives, must spend, a, I think, a week working in the store. Yeah. When you start, it's a part of your orientation, so instead of you having people at corporate and they just kind of, oh. Don't get it. Store, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I remember because I like plants, so I volunteered to work in the plant division. But I love that because that connection just gives you something different, right? So let's talk about the less pretty part, right? The fear, oh, yeah. the problems, the challenges. As you were getting into this, did you have you run into any hurdles? I know it's been, you know, a year and a half, so it's still early, but have you, you know, ran into any like nervous moments or challenges? But you know, not just that, I'm really curious about um, because I want to pivot on this question, it's two part because now I okay, I remember. <laughs> um, is that I was kind of talking about my vision, right? I think the community, I call it community two I two can really benefit from, mm -hmm. you know, business ownership and entrepreneur ownership. But, mm -hmm. you know, share with us some problems and challenges. Also, I'd love to see your thoughts on how you feel the community could benefit from experiencing some of the things you have experienced as owner. Got it. Okay. I'll remember those too. So um, I'll, I'll take that last one last. Um, the all jokes aside, the pandemic. <laughs> um, I was pursuing my franchise journey several months before we even knew what a COVID-19 coronavirus was, Like you know. And I think we all remember that weekend in March where the country shut down. Most of us probably uh, took our laptops home. We all thought we were going to be home for two weeks. Remember that, right? I signed my agreement and I paid a five-figure 
be on that Friday that the country shut down. So much so that my husband and I went back to our hotel and said, oh, like it was looming so large that we said, we need to cancel our flight and drive home. It's not, you know, it's not safe to be in a plane and, you know, and all that. So that had me shaking in my boots. Quite literally, do I proceed? I am about to make, I have already made a five-figure investment. I know I can do it, but do the macro conditions, are they, are, am I set up for success? And that's why I mentioned earlier about just my faith walk and how much of a spiritual journey it was. Um, there was a point in time where I was about to sign my lease agreement and I have never had, I don't know if you call it an, a panic attack or anxiety. I don't know what you call it, but I had dropped to my knees and my husband was right in front of me and I was just trying to catch my air. I was terrified. I was about to lock myself into a 10 year agreement, make a half a million dollar investment with the assistance of an of a SBA loan that I would be required, you know, on the hook for paying back monthly for the next X amount of years. I was terrified. Everything around me was saying, girl, what are you doing? But there's two things about that. There's obviously the spiritual component. But there's also the fact that I had done my research and I understood and I was paying attention. The, and so for anyone considering franchising, the industry matters. I think, you know, even outside of outside of franchising, it, with a wave of macro events, inflation, recession, uh, you, know, pa- you know, pandemics, the list goes on. There are going to be industries that succeed and those that don't. And there was one thing, one of the reasons I chose coffee was because of how resilient it was. I chose PJ's coffee, not because of the cute love story that exists with me going to the one near my high school and, you know, all the things, but I chose it because it was a brand with brand equity and quality that I knew would be able to compete in Dallas. And I was right. So all those things come together, help me make the decision and continue through. The next part that was very challenging, and I want y'all to hear me on this, whether you want to do a franchise or not, was the SBA loan process and lending while Black. That was something that was very interesting for me. And I want y'all to remember the role of self-advocacy. We all know math, maths, two plus two equals four, period, right? And I could go on, we could have a whole session on this, but obviously this is an environment where PPP loans were going out and the SBA was pressure testing businesses more than ever. And I had just read an article in the Dallas Business Journal that was talking about how lending to to, to white Americans was up some double digits, like 20, 30%, while, though, while they were down double digits for black women. And I was, so I was already kind of like, I was aware of that. And I remember there was a point in my SBA loan application where it asked me to check a box. And I remember like hesitating. And I was just like, I'd have a really different experience if I checked this box, but I'm gonna check my box because I'm not shrinking for anybody, right? And we were having conversations with the with the lending officer and there was so much hesitance that was not reflected on paper, period. I wouldn't have gone into it. One of the things that when I, when I used to consult that I advise clients all the time is to know your personal net worth. If you want to go into business for yourself, unless you are in business and your business has been established for years, I'm talking three, four, five years, your personal finances are going to be a decision maker for a bank or for a lender. So it's important you understand that my personal net worth was strong, my credit was strong, my cash liquidity was strong, all the things. They kept pushing, pushing, pushing. And there was a point where they said, Miss Ms. Willis, I don't know if this is going to go through. And it was at that point, I had already signed my lease. I couldn't, I could, you know, it's there, it, unfortunately, sometimes you can't wait for all the yeses to stack up because the location is everything. So if I let that location go, 
there would be none of this. So I had already signed my lease. Everything was on the line at this point. And I essentially, is my point, that was a terrifying moment. What do you do at that point if you're not getting the lending, right? And so um, again, that goes back to self-advocacy. Like I just, I had to literally, I demanded to speak to a supervisor and we got on a Zoom and we walked that Excel sheet. And I said, you tell me where this, 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 and this says risk, says anything but you know, go forward. The next morning I had an acceptance in my email. So I find that I talked about the matriarchs in my life, the ones that didn't know, no, that they didn't know impossible. That spirit definitely came through me um, in that moment. And I think that as a business person, especially as a businesswoman and especially as a black businesswoman, you are going to have to be assertive and stand up for yourself, which takes me to my, your next question, Calvin. I think that when I think about the impact that I can make in the community, there are very few things that have impacted me, I mean, weakened me, than a little black girl coming up to my counter and saying, she's the owner? Mommy, daddy, I wanna own a business one day too. Lord, that's it. That, like, I, have, I have goosebumps. Like that is what you do it for. You do it, it's the representation that it's possible. Um, I was having a conversation with, um, a friend of mine, I grew up in a private school, so I have friends of all shades and creeds. And I remember just the reactions that me going into business has gotten from my non-Black counterparts and those that are. And when I, I just went to Vanderbilt's homecoming, and I, I'm look at your question, Tamika. I went to Vanderbilt's homecoming, and I kid you not, everyone, if I hugged 30 people, 28 were like, sis, I see you. Black girl magic do it. I got some questions. Like, so again, for me, it's it's this, but for whatever it is, you know, for any of you, and I always tell people, and I might be going a little bit off, but what's burning in you that someone else needs to see you do so they can do it? And, you know, Calvin, you asked a great question. There are so many days and this sounds glamorous. It's not, this is hard. My days are long. My days are hard. It's a sacrifice. It's expensive. I have two assistants to help me balance the life that I have and to make it all fit. But I kid you, it sounds corny, sounds cliche, but when those moments when I think I don't have it, um, I pull into, but I need to keep going because I know people are watching and I know they're paying attention and I can do this. And it's just that love and it's opportunities like this. When you talk about just the impact of being a business owner, being a black business owner is so important to us because generational wealth is something that, I mean, if there's a race, we're not even in the blocks. And so business ownership, gets you at the table. There's there's business meetings, there's city meetings that I'm a part of because I'm a small business owner and I have the opportunity to impact legislation. There's chamber opportunities where I have the opportunity to impact and represent those who look like me and interest for those. So I could go on and on, but just the representation and the visibility and the and the access to decision making, I would say are just some of the some of the best um spoils, I would say, of being a small business owner in your community. Awesome. Awesome. I love it. And, you know, I heard somebody say recently, when it comes to representation, we can't be what we don't see. And I love that, right? Because based on what you're saying is that young girl, that little girl, she was able to see something that encouraged her to be something, right? Yeah. It's so beautiful. So for the audience, Tamika is dropping in the chat questions for the audience. Um, so the question for Tamika, that is for the audience. So Tamika, make sure you, you let the audience know those questions are for them. But we want you guys to kind of let us know your thoughts while um, Brittany is talking. So Brittany, let's talk about franchise entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. Get into it. Like, 
tell us about some of the things people should consider, you know, yeah. when they're evaluating franchises. Like, you know, how do you go about selecting a franchise? How yeah. do you research a franchise? You know, you know, what should we look out for? Tell us about that experience when it comes to evaluating their choice of a franchise. Yes, yes, yes. Um, I have, I talk about all this more in a course that I did just for the, the millions of people seemingly who were asking these questions. But I basically divided my, my thought process into two into two modes. Should I and can I? The should and the, the should I is all about do I really understand the business model? Am I am I ready to be an owner? Am I ready to operate? Am I ready to do everything that it takes to either do this full time or balance it both and all those things? What you know, again, what type of model do I choose? I could, I'll come back there in a second. The can I really is is it is it feasible? Is it viable? I.e. the financial aspect of it. Again, I said understanding your finances, understand your creditworthiness, and your you know your your likelihood to be approved for a loan that could be from half a million to a million, because these endeavors from a storefront perspective, storefront franchises, there are there are those that are not store, um, um, storefronts, but those are more expensive than you think, whether you're building out like I did from the, from the ground up um, or if you're acquiring. But the should I, let me talk about that. So franchising and the reason why that I chose it is because, and I think there's a question here about sourcing. Um, I chose franchising because I knew I again I'm enterprising. I love the business of it. I didn't have to decide where am I sourcing, who are my vendors, um, going through the, you know it alone in terms of you know where do I select a location. When you're in a franchise system, it's almost like you know if you go to college and you have a guide, a good guidance counselor, right? Or in your job and you have a really good trainer or a coach. It's you're in a support system that essentially gives you a blueprint where you essentially can go do your thing now. Do not confuse this. A, a franchise is still akin to a startup as it relates to your day one. You still have got to figure out who who's your team, who are you going to hire, how are you going to train them. Your franchisor is going to tell you and give you coaching, and they might even give you books and worksheets on how to operate. But at the end of the day, your store is in a particular geography with a certain customer, with certain staffing and all the things. So you're going to have to determine for yourself how you want to operate. And that's where that you know that the, that what kind of model do I want so there I wanted a model that was low employee need and a little less complex a coffee shop does not really require that much don't get me wrong it's not it's not easy it's not it's not a cakewalk but I don't have if at a McDonald's has six and seven um you know departments you got kitchen you got back of house front of house for all these things right a coffee shop is very lean you know I max out at about four people per shift whereas if you're looking at more complex um, organizations and models, there might be 100 people on staff entirely and 20 to 30 people on staff at a time. And so you need to think about, like I said, what type of owner do you want to be? Do you want to navigate a more matrix, a more complex operational structure? Or do you want something a little more laid back? So I see something about like a UPS store. That's a great example. Whether you're in, there are stores within stores and there's also standalone stores, but we're talking kind of lean, clean operations. Again, not easy, but lean, clean operations. You might need two people at a time. There's that. But, and like I said, there's the Chick-fil-A's and the Wendy's and the McDonald's of the world where it's a whole different story because of the type of traffic they go through. So that's a really big piece of it. You have, you have to really understand. And also, do you even want a storefront? There are franchises that don't require storefronts. I mean, people franchise out vending machine, um, you know, com- I mean, ATMs, there's all sorts of things. Some, sometimes it's just the concept for you to go do something that where you could work from home. So there's a myriad of models 
um, that it again, it don't require a store from, but for you, but for you all to consider, just think about the brand. You don't, and my, my biggest advice is you don't have to like it. You don't really have to know it. You should get to know the industry. You should, but a business opportunity is a business opportunity. I happen to love coffee. So, you know, it just, it worked out well. But, you know, I don't like smoothies that much. And I know Smoothie King is the bomb.com. And that's something that I'm considering, you know, in my portfolio. So those are the things that, you know, I really go into just, again, the should I, what type of model, um, what type of operations, and also understanding just, again, the full in investment that you need. That's important because franchisers, um, they want you to sign. They want you to sign and they want to get your franchise agreement. Most of those are going to range. 25,000 to even 50 plus. It just depends on, on the franchise. So you sign that just to even get a conversation to start talking about where to pick your location. Again, if it's a storefront. That, that is, that's that. There still could potentially be several hundreds of thousands of dollars of more of an investment. You want to know that on the upfront. You want to have the conversation with the franchisor. They are legally required to disclose it, by the way. You want to have conversations with other franchisees to ask them, what are, what's your, what are your profit margins? They're telling me 20%, but is it really? Understand how much money you're going to be making. Just because the business is generating revenue and it's open does not mean that it's making enough profit for you to either quit your job or maybe to stop ingesting capital into it. So that's a really important part that you want to understand before you get into it, because like I said, franchises are going to make it look very rosy and all the good things, but before you sign on a dotted line and you're and you're more committed, really dig into the all-in initial startup costs as well as understanding from a month-to-month profitability standpoint what's realistic. You know, I, I love your story, right? And it's such a bold story, it's such a strong testimony. Because as you were looking at the spreadsheet, I'm like, that's that MBA coming in. And as you're stepping into your 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 confidence, you'd be like, you know, I can hear, as they say, the ancestors behind you. That's it. So those women, <laughs> they'd be like, uh-uh, girl, don't you turn back now, right? right? And I see all of that. And then I see as you pay it forward, right? So tell us this, as we begin to kind of transition to our next speaker, you know, I we could talk all night, but oh my goodness, this is awesome. Tell us about what's next for you. You say you're maybe considering other franchise. Mm-hmm. Tell us about your podcast. Tell us about um, um, Protégé to Pro. Tell us about yeah. what you got going on, how people can connect with you, and what's next for Brittany, and how can we support you? Yeah, I think it's, thank you for that. So yeah, I think what's next really is embedded in Protégé to Pro. So it's a brand that I created um, about, almost exactly a year ago when I launched my digital course. Again, I was sharing so much about franchising. I had more people in my DMs asking how, how, how than I could get to one-on-one. Um, and it's also when I was doing individualized consulting, I realized one-on-one just isn't wide enough of a net. Like I'm looking to make a bigger impact. So Protégé to Pro is a brand that, you know, its mission is to arm career professionals and entrepreneurs with Fortune 500 knowledge. I have had a very rich and still have a very rich career where I've gotten paid to be to get some of the best training in the world. Um, and so as I've had conversations, even ones like this, or I just had a speaking engagement yesterday, just the little pieces, little ways that God uses me and exposes me to people, just, just the smallest nuggets that I could easily take for granted for my career, bless small business owners who who just, who haven't thought like that, who didn't think about that. Oh, a PL, what is that? I should track my cash flow. Why? All the things. And so I'm continuing to massage out what what sort of a journey am I looking to take? Because for me, Calvin, it's really about 
the thought leadership. This is what I love doing. I love sharing the knowledge that I have, that I have learned. I think there's a, a multitude of ways I can package it. My podcast is one of them. I have a wealth of people come on who are career professionals, who are entrepreneurs, who are doing both, who are transitioning, all the things. Because I'm a believer that we two things. We don't have to choose. I'm a living, I'm a living kind of, you know, walking, you know, message of that. You don't have to choose. I mean, maybe one day you'll make a choice, but whatever it is, get started. And Betty, I see your, I see your chat. And I think that's so beautiful. I'd love to talk more with you about that. Um, and I think also that entrepreneurship and career really aren't that different. I think we've been trained to think of them as separate and treat them as separate. And don't. And, and again, don't get me wrong, there are nuances. I, I feel a lot more protected in my company from a decision than I do in my, my little coffee shop that, that, that could take me down. So don't get me wrong, but there's so much transferability between traditional career pathing and entrepreneurship. And so that's what my podcast is just really about. I do, I do, I do, I think a pretty consistent job of no matter what the subject matter is, showing the other side what's applicable. Because I think that as time goes on and as this younger generation continues to, to pave their way, I think we're going to see a lot more people doing both, considering doing both. So my goal is to make sure no matter what you choose, you're prepared. So um, just, yeah, the podcast, thank you. I see it in there. The podcast uh, is a piece there. Um, and I'm looking to do just more speaking, more engagements and continuing to share my knowledge and, and, to, and to help, again, entrepreneurs and other professionals develop either their careers or launch their businesses. So that's my, that's my passion project. Awesome. You know, you guys heard it here. If I had one word to describe Brittany, I would say sister is passionate <laughs> about what she does. And you know, one thing about that passion, right? You know, we, we go to work, we, we hate what we do, but when you can really, really love what you do, the extra horsepower that you get. I remember many years ago, I was, um, doing a Dave Ramsey or something course with friends and we were doing our budgets. And I remember a lot of friends were nervous about creating their budget. And it was the first time it hit me. I'm like, I do these Excel and these financial stuff in the nine to five every day. What if I took those same financial Excel skills that I give to corporate America every day and give it to my own people? to help them with their budgets, whatever. And I see Brittany is doing that. So you guys, make sure you guys support her. It seems like they can reach out to you at 828enterprises.com. Um, yeah, you and, you can, and you can follow me on Instagram, uh, the underscore Brittany Willis. I share a whole, just a kind of, you know, day-to-day -day and all the fun stuff. So uh, definitely follow me there as well. Awesome, awesome. Well, Brittany, feel free to hang out with us as long as you yeah. want. There's some questions in the chat um, <laughs> for if you want to kind of, if you guys got questions, because there's been a lot going on, make sure you restate your question in the chat so Brittany can grab it and make sure you follow her on Instagram and um, um, her website so you guys can contact her. She has a contact sheet. I think you can book time with her, right? And I'm just putting that out there. But, you know, Brittany, thank you so much. And oh my goodness, we could be talking forever, but, you know, we got a packed agenda, so we're going to transition. So thank you for being here tonight. Yes, You're you. welcome to hang out for longer because late on night, we're going to be playing some of that five, okay. four music. And we're going to see uh, on the other side, the sorority sister come out. I already know how it works. <laughs> yes. Well, a love and like to all of you it was an absolute pleasure. And reach out to me anytime. I'm an open, I'm open book. I mean it. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Wow. Wow. So next we're going to transition to Dr. Bev. And in transition to Dr. Bev, you know, I just want to kind of give you guys a, a few updates. You know, you've heard me say, hey, this is the, the last episode of the season. 
Well, if you think about it, we've been going live every Thursday for the last two years, and it's like crazy busy, right? Reaching out to awesome people like Brittany, like Dr. Bev every week. And now we're at a point where we're getting ready to pivot. But at the same time, we're going to be around a little bit because we're going to have some pop-ups every now and then. And I've already got the first pop-up plan. And this is the topic. With everything that's going on in the news, and I think this is going to be an open discussion. There's no speaker, just open discussion about you. And the topic is going to be the decline, the fall in the death of hip-hop. Stated as a question, could it be time for hip-hop to die like rock music? I don't know. I don't know. Don't be mad at me. It's just a discussion. So be looking forward to an invite um, for that pop-up. And what we're going to do is talk about it. And we're going to give you guys the microphone, you guys the opportunity to chat about it. But I don't know, Katie. What do you think about that? As we're waiting for Dr. Bev to come online. Let's see. Oh, I see she doesn't have capability. I see that's what it was. You're asking me if I think hip-hop is about to die or should we let it die? I think we're going to leave it open, but um, what do you think about the topic? Sorry, Dr. Bev, I didn't know you went out and came back in, so I didn't know you had lost permissions. Good. Yeah, it is the right topic to be discussing in all honesty, so I'm really looking forward to that pop-up because it's going to be a good one to have people really weigh in on what their thoughts are. Yeah, I think, you know, we live during a new time. I mean, I remember back in the day when in the 80s, when, you know, people spoke, you know, righteous and conscious and culture music. And now with independent artists, people just do what they want to do, right? They disenfranchise their own, you know, um, listeners. What in the world? How do you do that? How do you disenfranchise the people who... Your customers, right? That's crazy, (laughs) right? So we need to talk about this thing, right? But, you know, but that's coming up. So um, hang on tonight. We're going to transition to our next speaker. Now that I know she actually um, has the right permission, Dr. Bev. Dr. Bev, how you doing, lady? Hi. Thank you for hanging out. What do you think about, um, oh my goodness, Miss Brittany, what do you think about her? Amazing. My eyes were on the screen. My ears were open and I just loved her cadence and her voice, the information she shared and to see such brilliance. Yes, yes, yes. Brilliance. You know, I I love it because, you know, when when I'm searching for people, you know, even running into you, you know, um, thank you to Miss Betty for, you know, she told me like months ago, she's like, you got to talk to Dr. Bev. You got to talk to Dr. Bev. I'm like, okay. And she would not let me go. She's like, you got to talk to Dr. Bev. And then when I I look you up, I'm like, wait a minute, Dr. Bev then wrote, I'm going to read y'all this um, short bio, Dr. Bev. So y'all need to know we are around some awesome, awesome speakers tonight. Short bio. Dr. Beverly Browning is a nonprofit capacity building consultant and a revenue generating visionary. She and her team have helped clients win over $750 million in grant awards. She has authored, count this, check this out, 47 grant writing publications, including seven editions of Grant Writing for Dummies. What that means is you can pick it up in Barnes & Noble or any bookstore. You're going to find one of Dr. Bev's book. Any bookstore, you're going to find one of her books. Also, the sixth edition of Nonprofit Kit for Dummies and the fourth edition of Fundraising for Dummies. Welcome, Dr. Bev. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. 
Awesome. You know, as we get started, you know, when we sat down and talked, I really enjoyed our discovery session of just hearing your origin story. Because when people begin to look at, if I do a web search, I'm like, wow, she has 47 books. That would make me think, oh, she's always been, I call it, always been refined. But based on your story, I learned that you got a testimony. You haven't always been the lady who's author of 47 books. Tell us about your origins, where you grew up, your story, your family. Tell us about you, Dr. Beth. I was born and raised in Flint, Michigan. Um, my parents worked for General Motors. My dad left um, at about 20 years to pursue his dream of being an international jazz musician. Um, but because my parents were very young when they got married and both working full time and had no classes in parenting, how to take care of a new baby, um, my grandmother took me, my dad's mother, and she raised me from the age of nine months until I was 13 years old. So I was protected, sheltered. You know, older people believed at that time children are meant to be seen, not heard. So I learned to be quiet, not talk, occupy myself, read, um, pretty much stayed in the house a lot. Uh, I had to be forced to get out and ride a little bike around the driveway even. Um, and, and just really um, in that environment, never learned to cook, never had to do any housework. You know, she didn't think children should do that. Get out of the kitchen, get, you know, no underfoot, all of this. So I focused on school. Reading, learning, excelling, being the best that I could be. Because if I didn't bring home all A's, there was punishment. And it wasn't standing in a corner. It was good old-fashioned corporal punishment. So I worked hard for those A's, definitely. But at 13, my life changed. Um, my mother became uh, pregnant with my brother. And she needed help at home. And my grandmother said, you know, we're elderly. We've raised our own children. They're all adults. We've raised you to the age of 13. You've got a good start. So you're going to have to move home and help your mom. And I thought that would be a piece of cake, but I should have known better because I was a, a naive, sheltered child. Well, when I went to live with my parents, life wasn't what I thought it would be. Um, it was chaotic. It was, they were very dysfunctional. Uh, neither one of them wanted to be in that marriage at that time, but with my mom expecting my brother, they both felt like they had to be in the marriage at that time. So when he came home from the hospital, I was the one that had to name him. They didn't even have a name. That tells you a lot about um, his you know, being himself. Um, and I named him after a first cousin that, you know, was cute and I thought it was a great name. So very much like that. Um, but I also realized that I needed to get out of the house as much as possible. And it was almost impossible because every time I left, I had this baby with me. People thought that I had the baby because I was always pushing him down the street in a stroller, taking him every place that I went. Um, he got very sick somewhere between the age of six and nine months. And both my parents um, ignored my phone calls. They were at work and, you know, I did get a call back and it's like, um, no matter what's happening, figure it out. You're going to get it when we get home. 
you're supposed to be taking care of him. And it's like, no, I'm supposed to be going to school. And it's like, don't talk back to me, child. So my grandparents got custody of my brother and that left me alone, but I was glad he was safe. He was with grandparents, even though they were elderly. So I started out by babysitting. Um, I was lucky enough at the age of 15 to get a work study permit from high school. And I, I think it was called co-op. And I started working at what used to be called Sears and Roebuck. So if you're wondering what that is, all you young people, I want to be 74. But before Sears, as we know it now, even though it has minimal locations, it was called Sears and Roebuck Company. And I worked the customer service desk, which was a life learning event. Um, people yelling at me. Um, they weren't used to seeing someone of color behind the desk. I worked with two older white women and uh, a pretty snappy, stern uh, white supervisor. And I was supposed to smile and be kind and, and just take it no matter what. And I did. I never went off on anybody, was always kind, even when they threw things across the counter. You know, I just say, oh, you must have dropped this. And I picked it up and put it back. Um, but I learned about treating people kindly, no matter how crazy they act. And I didn't realize it was a lesson at the time, but it was a lesson that helped me much, much later in my life. After that, I went to work for the newspaper, which was also an anomaly because there was only one black salesperson, uh, probably 10 to 12 white salespeople. And I was the first person they had as a secretary to the executive director over sales. And he wasn't exactly excited to have me work with him. Um, he talked down to me. Um, he reprimanded me when I didn't go get his coffee one morning. And finally, I said, give me something else to do so I don't have to report to Mr. Cook because Mr. Cook has an attitude. I went to uh, personnel. And then after personnel, I went to the head of the newspaper. I did not spare any, I, I could have cared less about losing the job. It was important for them to know I needed to be moved or reassigned. So they assigned me to advertising for the church page. And I got to meet with all of the ministers all over the community. And I realized that my community was much larger than I thought it was. And that the newspaper was a safe place. Um, they talked to me about going to, I was only uh, 17 and 16, 17. They talked to me about going to college. They talked to me about, you know, learning other skills, doing things. I was promoted from advertising into the editorial department with the reporters. And I worked in the editorial library where we used to have to clip out uh, articles from the newspaper and file them by topic and then also film them on microfiche. So what did I learn there? I learned that when people embrace you and care about you, it doesn't matter what your color is or what your background is. They knew me because I was a hard worker, not because my dad played in the bar around the corner that they went to on Friday night. And I appreciated that. Um, I was married at the age of 18. And I might mention in between there, I learned about street life and street smarts. I was a pretty wild teenager through the years. Um, and, and I'm glad I had that part of my life, even though um, it was crazy and dangerous. 
um, I no longer look for thrills. That's one thing. When you've, when you've seen everything and done everything, you're ready to settle down. Uh, married at 18, married um, by choice, uh, fell in love with my husband. And my only goal was to go to college. And that's what I talked about uh, before I asked him to marry me, that I wanted to marry somebody who would help me go to college no matter how long it took. Little did I know that I'd be in college from the age of 20 until the age of 40. Um, it was amazing. My doctorate is honorary, but at, when I graduated with my master's, University of Michigan, uh, Ann Arbor offered me a full ride for my doctorate degree, but I would have to commute back and forth to Ann Arbor four days a week, and I still needed to work. So I turned it down uh, because I felt like my family had given up a lot. I was never there. I was always working and I was always at school. I never took my eye off of wanting to get the degrees. Um, two people who marry that young as we were, you can't live your life with both people making minimum wage. Uh, well, you can, but I, I didn't wanna go the same route that my parents did um, at all. I wanted a better life, a different life. Um, and it wasn't about material things. It was just about being safe, um, not having to worry about, you know, arguing at home, fighting at home, drinking and, and getting drunk at home, going out to clubs, none of that. When you've seen it and you've done it as a teenager before it was legal, you don't want a life like that at all. You want a calmer life. Did I ever think that I would be um, where I am today? not in any goals, not in any dreams. Um, I worked in healthcare for almost 14 years. And when I took my first class uh, in death and dying, I had to write what I wanted to have on my headstone. And this was back when I was in uh, likely mid twenties. I wrote, if I've only touched one person while passing through, my life shall not been in vain because I've heard that and I knew it was some, somebody famous had said it and I understood what it meant, but I didn't know that I was planting the seed for today, for everything that I've come through, everything that I've learned, the good, the bad and the ugly. Most people that know me now would never believe that I used to be the street bev. Um, the person who snuck out at night, who climbed out of an attic window in order to jump off the roof and go out with a group of kids and ride motorcycles and drink and all of the rest of it. Um, if you don't experience it, you'll crave it. But if you experience it too young and you realize the danger of standing on the edge of the cliff without a parachute, your life will be formed to be a much better life. You'll be a better person and you'll be content with whatever you have. Awesome. Awesome. You know, thank you, Dr. Bev, for sharing that very personal story. And I know the part of your story that was just so, so intriguing to me is that when you went to your parents and let them know you wanted to go to college, they weren't okay with that. What did they say when you told them you want to go to college? First, they laughed and I was insulted um, and I had tears in my eyes and I thought, well, this was not the best plan to talk about. And they said, no, no, no. We work for General Motors. We work on the line. You're going to do the same thing. Your dad works at Chevrolet. 
I work and my mom said I work at AC Spark Plug, we're each going to bring you home an application and you're going to fill it out and we're going to take it back. And whoever hires you first, that's the job you're going to take. And you're not going to college. You're not moving out. You're going to stay here and you're going to give us half of your check every week. And my response was half of my check for bottles of vodka. And, you know, I got in trouble. I think I got slapped um, for that little smart Alec comment. But at that point, it was like, I'm out of here by any means, by any plan, I'm going. Awesome. Awesome. Well, kudos to you because that definitely set you on your way to meet your husband. And congratulations to him for being a man of vision. As we pivot to talk about helping nonprofit clients reach their financial capacity. You know, I've heard about grants and fundraising, all of that, but I never really thought about helping clients, these nonprofits, reach financial capacity. Tell us about some of the clients you work with, some of the projects you work with. Tell us about, you know, even just how you got into grants, because now you're writing books consecutively, you're, you're, you're doing courses and workshops, but how did you even get into grant writing? By accident. I was the vice president on a board of directors for a nonprofit called the Voluntary Action Center in Flint, Michigan. They were affiliated with the United Way of Genesee in Shiawassee County. And I was the youngest vice president. I was the only board member of color. And I got there early because I would go right after work. Um, and the executive director came in and she looked very troubled, distraught. And she had some paper in her hand, maybe in a file folder. And I said, what's wrong, Sybil? And she said, we are losing our suicide hotline um, program, our phone, for people to call in that want to commit suicide that need to talk to a counselor or a social worker because we just don't have any money. And our contract with community mental health is running out. And so being the exciting new board member that I was, I said, oh, well, how can I help? And she said, get us a grant. And I said, well, um, I only know about getting a grant to go to college. I don't know about getting a grant for a nonprofit. And she threw the papers down on the table, angry. And she said, what are you doing taking up a seat on my board? And you don't know how to help bring money into this nonprofit organization. So I felt pretty horrible and belittled and embarrassed. So the other board members came and none of them looked like me. And I thought, well, obviously they know something, I don't. Um, and I said, well, hey, does anybody know how to find some grant money because we're losing our suicide hotline? And they all said, no, not really. Um, if we don't get you know, money from United Way, then we just don't have a suicide hotline. And they were kind of nonchalant. So I was working full-time and going to college at night then. And the next day I called in sick at work and I was at the public library when they opened up and I went to the reference department and I asked the librarian, do you have any books on grants or grant writing or who gives grants? And she said, no, we don't. Her seed was planted. I did not know that that seed would take so many years to grow before I started writing books, but she did have a little tattered notebook with pages and Three papers were in it. One was the Community Foundation, one was a private foundation, and one was the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation. One of the largest foundations in the world at that time, and they continue to be the 
the largest, one of the largest today. And I knew the name, but I didn't know why. So naturally I, I called my grandmother and I said, why does the name Charles Stewart Mott ring a bell? And she said, because when your grandfather used to take him, take you to work with him on Saturdays over to uh, Applewood, the Mott estate, you sat on the back steps, a man that you learned to call Uncle Charlie would always pick apples for you and sit down and talk to you. Your grandfather told me about it. And I said, wait a minute, Uncle Charlie has money? <laughs> she said, Uncle Charlie has a lot of money. And I said, well, how do I talk to the foundation? And she said, call his son-in-law, Bill White. And she said, call him and tell him who you are, that you're Clay Mitchell's granddaughter. And I'm sure you'll get in right away. I did. I called in sick the next day because I'd already called and I got an appointment that morning. He gave me a booklet that told me what they expected. I told him I didn't even have a typewriter, that we were really poor and I'll have to have somebody in the neighborhood type it. And he said, that's okay. Bring back whatever you have, loose pages, notebook pages, whatever. So I found somebody to type it for a dollar a page. Uh, I found a lot of things that needed to be changed and I made it, had to pay another dollar a page change. So we were really poor then as well. And I took it back to him and I'd only asked for one year of money. And all he did was just put his signature on what I'd given him to move on to finance. And he awarded us that money for three years, every year, a hundred thousand a year for three years. I didn't know anybody had the authority to sign their name on a piece of paper and do that. I've never seen anything like it, but it was the first lesson I learned. And I said, why didn't you support the volunteer center before I came over here? He said, because you're the first one that's come over here in all the years they've been in existence. And I said, well, do you know our executive director? I go to her husband's church. I see them every Sunday and I play golf with her husband, who's our pastor, every Saturday. And neither one of them ever told you that the center needed money. No. Lesson two, if you don't ask, you don't get. Wow. O-M-G. Well, that's a way to get into fundraising. So I can imagine they were quite impressed with you. The Volunteer Center? Yes. <laughs> um, Actually, um, they were furious because they thought I embarrassed him because I didn't know how to write a grant proposal. Mm -hmm. And how did I get it written without getting the executive director's signature? When I took my first draft to her and showed it to her, she said, what is this? And I said, I'm writing a proposal to the Mount Charles Stewart Mott Foundation. And she said, you're just going to embarrass us. And I said, I just need a piece of letterhead to do a cover letter and I'll bring it for you to sign. And she said, absolutely not. And so I called my executive committee members from the board, the president, vice president, our president, treasurer and secretary. And I said, this is what I'm doing. And I think I can get us money, but I need letterhead. And I also need a copy of our financials and I need a signature on this letter. Will all of you sign it with me? And one said, I'll go in when she's at lunch and get the letterhead. The other one said, the bookkeeper knows my next door neighbor and I'll get the finances. So we all got together and we signed off on it. And then that's what I took in. So she wasn't real happy that I went behind her back and did it anyway. Um, and I didn't get an apology until 20 years later. Wow. You know, I'm, I'm loving the story, right? Because 
the theme is relationships, relationships, relationships. But also, as you can see, that 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 um, street hustle, you know, climbing out of the window seemed like it's coming in handy, Dr. Bell. <laughs> but I can appreciate the purpose that you took your talents and your superpowers and used them for good. So let's talk about the community. You know, there's a lot going on to society, and uh, you get to work with a lot of people, and we're going to talk about some of your grants and nonprofits um, soon. But let's talk about the community for a second. What are some of the challenges or issues that you see in the community that you would like to see improve when it comes to nonprofits and grant writing? I think you already alluded to it. If you don't ask, you don't get it. But what's your observation since you see so much that what you would like to see, you know, improved in the community when it comes to, you know, your observation? I would like to see foundations become more grant applicant friendly to newer nonprofits that haven't made it to the two or three year mark on their longevity. I would like to see more seed money made available. I would like to see the trustees of the foundation to come out of their upper class box and realize that there are needs that they drive by and see every day. They just don't look hard enough. Wow. I already know that we're going to have a good discussion on that a little bit later because I can already see KD in the back just ready to talk about, oh, you know, if you guys heard me say it a lot here at Southern Soul, we don't do the isms, you know, the classisms, the gender isms, the racism. I even saw something else in politics and there was able body isms. There's all kinds of isms out there, right? But yeah. we don't do the isms. So we're going to talk about that a little later. And I'm excited because I know KD is gone. Let's talk about some of your books, right? You wrote 47 books, you know, and if the audience had a chance to purchase them, I mean, what would be your recommendation to purchase one book or the other or to take one of your workshops? Because, you know, you've done, you do so much. Thank you. Um, first of all, if you are wanting to learn how to write grants, because I did see a question in the chat um, and you want to do it on your own, uh, the book is Grant Writing for Dummies. The seventh edition is out. It's in every online and in-person bookstore that you will walk into. It's part of the Dummies series, so don't be um, offended by grant writing for dummies. It's for people who want to learn how to do grant writing step-by-step step with a lot of break it down, make it clear tutorial type of language. Um, if you are starting a nonprofit or you recently started a new nonprofit and you don't have everything in place yet, then I would recommend Nonprofit Kit for Dummies. It takes you through not just the right kind of setup, but how to recruit the right board members. Board members should not be family and friends, sorry. Um, if you don't have any money and then you bring on family and friends and they don't have any money, then where are the board members that are supposed to participate in an annual give or get policy where they step up and write a check for $500, $1,000, $5,000? It's not happening unless you get some professional people that are interested in your mission, your vision, and have the ability to give and support you. And they can be of all cultural backgrounds. Don't have a board where everybody looks like you because then you won't get any money because the people giving out the money don't all look like us. Awesome, awesome. I'm loving it, I'm loving it. So, you know, I'm always, you know, having a business background, I've always been passionate about industries and different trends. When it comes to the nonprofit and grant industry, what are some trends that you're seeing? Some good trends, some bad trends? I mean, I know from talking at Katie, she's passionate about the topic. And, you know, she shares with me on occasion a few nuances. 
But what has been your observation or some positive or negative trends you see happening in the grant and um, nonprofit industry? And make sure we have to talk about the government, you know, space, too, that you work in. But, you know, if we'll do that question next. Okay. The trends that I see in the nonprofit community are more and more people are realizing after coming through COVID, even though now we have other things hitting us, that this is a time to realize their dream before their life is snuffed out by some next random, unknown, unreliable source, virus, or pandemic. Um, don't wait forever. Like, I'm so appreciative that I didn't wait till 74 to start living a dream, to take a chance, to jump out there, to do something. Uh, I can't imagine what the last years would have been like if I would have stayed anywhere for 30 years, retired, gotten a watch, a cake, and a pat on the back, and good work, Browning, and then walk out the door, and there's the uh, there's death standing 20 feet away because now I'm tired. I haven't done anything for myself. I've done it all for somebody with nothing but take home. If you want to control your earnings, if you want to be able to have options, if you want to be able to change the direction, projection of your life, figure out something and work for yourself, whether you purchase a franchise or you dream something up or God gives you that vision, follow through. Don't put it on hold because when we get a vision from God, he opens a door. So we find the way to the vision. We are not clueless and wandering around with our eyes closed. The other trend that I see, especially in the nonprofit sector, everybody who's forming a nonprofit doesn't know how to recruit a board, doesn't know how to get the board trained doesn't know how to get money out of the board, and the executive director runs everything, and they run the board because they're the founder. Wrong, wrong, wrong. According to the Internal Revenue Service, the buck stops at the board. So if you just roll over and say yes to everything an executive director of a nonprofit wants to do, then you're going to roll yourself right into jail or bankruptcy when IRS comes after you. You can be sued as a board member if you don't have directors and officers insurance. Anybody suing you and that, that lawsuit is won uh, for the plaintiff in court, you're the defendant. You're going to lose your home, your personal belongings, your retirement savings, everything you have simply for being a volunteer board member on a nonprofit. So if you're not prepared to work 15 or 20 hours a, work, a week, or I'm sorry, a month unpaid to, to roll up your sleeves, and help build that nonprofit, get out of the seat. Wow, wow, wow. I, I saw something in the chat, and I typically don't read the chat, but I saw epitome and wisdom. Wow. So, Dr. Bev, I would like to talk about what's next for you, because I love the story of how you got started teaching you're teaching the teachers, right? Teaching the grant writers. You, you no longer do grant writing yourself, no. but you are, I think, certified by the government and various other bodies to teach, you know, not only grant writing, but grant writing that's definitely targeted towards government agencies. Tell us about, you know, how you even got started teaching classes, what classes you have, workshops coming, and what the audience should expect. How can they support you there? Okay, so first of all, I'm just an ordinary person with an extraordinary amount of experience. I don't have any licenses from the government or from the state or from the Veterans Administration, but I do have a foundation and it's called the Grant Writing Training Foundation. And that's where all of the courses are developed under. 
Um, I came up with those courses because I'd been teaching online for Ed to Go since 2001. When the first Dummies book came out, they picked me up as one of their instructors to create courses. I now have seven online courses at Ed to Go, and I'm blessed to have two assistants, Sharon Brown and Sarah Menges, who helped me teach those courses because one of the courses I definitely cannot handle. There's usually two, three, four hundred students every six weeks in that course, and it's a lot. Um, but I created my own cohorts where I teach live on Zoom to individuals wanting to learn grant writing or grant writers who are already out there that want to write better, like federal format, as well as grant writing consultants who people who are freelancers and they have their own business, but they're not really making the income that they dreamed of. They find themselves on the grant writing treadmill and they can't get off. They're not charging enough money. They don't understand. You don't publish rates. Nobody, you never give the same fee quote to anybody. It's based on what state they're in, where they're located in that state, what the median income is, what the average pay scale is there for a full-time employed grant writer, and what that breaks down to on an hourly charge for a consultant. So there's a lot of mathematics that goes into the background of figuring out what to do. And I train people. I train them how to do that. Um, the courses, you can reach out to me on LinkedIn. Um, I'm under my own name, so you can find me. I also have a group called Dr. Bev Browning's group. That's mostly ex-students. And if you've taken a private Zoom cohort from me, you also get invited to the alumni cohort group, which is a special group of people that share resources, job openings, calls for subcontractors. There's a lot of opportunity in there to make more money once you've gone through the program. So I teach coaching and mentoring for new and struggling grant writers, 16 weeks. It's not easy. It's blood, sweat, tears, and gray hair. I also teach a four-week freelance grant writing consultant boot camp to help grant writers that are freelance to build their business. Um, I've just created a train the trainers course for nonprofit, tra nonprofit board trainers that will launch in January. And I also have a grant writers mentoring group with Sandra Cheney out of Maryland, who is extraordinary. And we're going to be doing a, a membership-based uh, twice a month membership group for anybody who's having problems, struggling with writing a grant, doesn't know where to look for funding. We're going to answer those answers right live in our hourly group. And it is twice a month with a three-month commitment. So there's tons of things out there. Uh, my marketing team posts everything on LinkedIn. And I also put my website in the chat um, right, I believe, before our first speaker. So it should be in there as bevbrowning.com. Awesome. And I know Tamika's going to drop it in the chat again, too. Wow. You know, I, I love to, you know, I'll tell you people, you know, I typically have speakers that I admire. I'm tell you what I admire about Dr. Bev. You know, me being a technology person, you know, I get a little, you know, I got my fancy background, whatever. I'm tell you about Dr. Bev. First, she'd already told you her age, right? So she's 74, but she got the best. She's like, oh, Calvin, please make sure you send me the flyers. So I'm going to send it to my offshore team and they're going to post it every day automatically. And we're going to take care of that. And I'm kind of like, what in the world? Dr. Bev is 74 years old, got more technology than a 20-year-old. She is walking, y'all, in her passion, in her dream, in her purpose. And I love it, right? Because it's beautiful and it just paints the picture, you know, of 
We have everything we need. Think about that. You know, you got people who are jealous. You got people who are haters. You got people who are holding us back. But we have everything we need. And then I begin to look about the last two years of Southern Soul and think about all of the awesome speakers we have from Brittany to Dr. Bev. And it's just, oh, my goodness. Black excellence. There's some trials. There's some tribulations. There's some hard times. There's a testimony. They say there's not a test without a testimony. But we have people who really, really, really have really stepped into that. I am going to do it. And I like the way Dr. Bev called it. She says, you, you spend those years, you get a watch, and then you're, you know, a few steps away from your last days. And what is your excitement about that? Right. <laughs> but I want to kind of add, you know, KD and Katie, what are, what are your thoughts about, you know, some of the things that uh, Dr. Bev have said? And I see Brittany is here. Brittany, if you're still here, feel free to turn on your camera. I would love to take a couple questions from the audience. Sure. Um, thank you, Bev, uh, Dr. Bev, for just having the opportunity to to be in the room with you, honestly. Um, you know, you said something really interesting about sort of what you wish foundations would do. And, you know, one of the things that you talked about is people sort of stepping out of their, um, out of their privilege, I guess. You know, people who are really wealthy who are sort of running these foundations. And I'm curious from you, if you have seen a shift at all in the last couple of years, in foundations and in their leadership and in them engaging more people that are sort of um, more aware of inequity um, that exists in the philanthropic in the philanthropic world. Yes, ever since DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, became um, an acronym that everybody had to march to because it's a part of the requirement if you apply for federal grants and now foundations are asking a copy of the policy. I've seen a lot of um, grant makers jump on board, hire additional diverse staff and try to understand. So that is a, a positive, a positive move. What I haven't seen though, is to come out with a common type of way for nonprofits to apply that doesn't cause them to have a rise in their blood pressure when they see they have to jump through 20 templates, calculate some ratios, figure out a cost to rate, cost to benefit ratio for numbers served, and then come up with their audit statement and everything else. For that busy nonprofit executive director who's likely trying to do that, because not every nonprofit has a grant writer. You just right. don't have the funds to bring somebody on board. They are being taken away from frontline services because that's what they're doing when they're not fooling around with applications and paperwork. Mm -hmm. So I would like to see things made easier. I would like to see more diversity in the grant making world. Um, I would like to see more grant writers that represent every possible nationality People interested in learning and doing and be a part of it because we drive it. You know, when I work with a client who sees their view only, I call them out and it's like, wow. hey, what did you mean by those people or they? Who are you talking about? And then there's just silence. Uh, uh, I'm talking about the people we serve. Right. So it's our target population, our service area, right? Because you have to take ownership in it because that's how I'm going to write it. I'm not going to write them and they and those people. You'll never get a dollar. Right. And so then they kind of adjust their attitude. 
Absolutely. Wow. wow. Katie, you know, it reminds me of the thing that we talk about when you talk about organization who had, let's just call it what it is, old white men in charge organizations that represent black initiatives, right? And Dr. Bev call it, you know, privilege and things like that. But I, I know one of your thoughts, and, you know, we talked about having that person from United Way come here and speak so we can enable our audience to be qualified and prepared to serve on boards and in these places because representation matters, right? We can't be what we don't see. But what are your thoughts, Katie, about, you know, organizations making sure there are even constituents or involved in these places? Because I never knew it was so weird. But I remember when 2016 happened, I'm like, where are the people making the decisions? But now I'm just thinking about these old white men who are in charge of these organizations that represent black initiatives. And I'm like, it's crazy out there, but I'm just ob- observing. Katie, what are your thoughts? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, to Dr. Betty's point, there are a lot of foundations in particular and organizations that are seeing that they have got to involve a more diverse population in the management and leadership of their organizations, whether it's on the board of directors or whether it's executive staff, or even it might be program staff who are actually out there doing the work and they can relate to what's going on. They have the cultural competence that's needed in, in, in order to make the changes that need to be made in the organization. Um, I think one of the things that, that Dr. Bob said, however, about how it's hard for really young organizations to get funding from foundations. That is, Dr. Bev, that's so true. And, you know, do you have any thoughts about that? Because, you know, sometimes really young organizations are the ones that are most innovative, but they are also sometimes the ones that haven't taken a look at what some of the assets in the community are that they can leverage in addition to just going after the money themselves. So what are your thoughts about the youngsters who who have the great ideas, young young organizations that have the great ideas. Get some middle-aged people who are movers and shakers on the board because they can open the door to by talking to a foundation's trustee or a board member, um, giving them information about the organization and say, you know, I would really like to see them be able to have an opportunity to submit an application and be included in your grant making process, even though they're new. I've seen what they've done already. I know the people, you know, I know the people who founded this and I sat on the board, but the, it's the board. I blame the board. The board, are they're the bridge. They can bring the money into the new nonprofit, but they have to get out of the seats. They have to get out. They have to network. They have to be parts of chambers, business to business meetings and everything else. And on their own, they can use vistaprint.com and get a little cheap business card printed with the name of the nonprofit, their phone number, the nonprofit's website, the address, how to donate. They have to be able to think outside the box to help because that nonprofit can't get cards printed for every board member. Um, And there's just so much there. Board members just don't get up and move. So I got a sidebar and I don't even know if I shared this with Kelvin. Kelvin, did I tell you that I am sitting on the board of a brand new bank in Central Phoenix called Integral Bank? And I was invited to be on the board and I turned them down at least four times thinking it was something that I didn't know anything about, which I didn't and that I couldn't do. Um, I am the only woman of color on that board, probably one of the few that is not of extreme wealth. And yet um, I'm in a position for change. I'm in a position to help bring 
more depositors into our bank that look like me. We serve small businesses. Um, I've also started the bank's foundation, the Integral Bank Foundation. I'm the executive director. I gave my own self the title because I was doing all the work. Um, <laughs> and we have a, a board who's across the country um, and a giving board. So I never thought this is where I would be. And I just want to tell all the younger people here tonight, there are gifts waiting for you that you don't even know what they are. You don't even know that they're ready to be unwrapped. But when somebody offers you something, say yes the first time. Do your due diligence. Look that person up. Um, I even subscribe to Ben Verified, B-E-E-N-Verified.com. I check clients out. I check people who call me and want me to join something. Um, and as long as there's no criminal background record and you know they, they haven't had multiple bankruptcies and they move every four days, um, pretty much we'll talk to them. So check it out. But people have told me, we can't believe you're on a bank board. How did you do that? That's just not the way Arizona works. Well, it's a beginning. And somebody has to be first and somebody has to set an example. Awesome. Awesome. I love it. I love it. Katie, we got one question that came in from Cecilia and we're going to transition because I've actually enabled you guys can um, turn on your videos because I know y'all ready to dance. Uh, I see Daryl Jaden popped in here. And exactly. How we go from talking about grants to dance. Y'all don't understand. <laughs> we descendants of the tribe of Judah. And if you don't know what that means, look it up. I'm telling you, that means we got heart and soul. But anyway, Katie, what was the question we had in the chat? Let me, let me, let me read Cecilia's question. Um, she received a frustrating response to diversifying the board. And I, I want to get a little more context from her. Uh, apparently, the population, perhaps the population served, is small with respect to, to Black members. That numbers don't call for a whole position, I guess, on the board to represent communities served. How do I educate this young white executive director? Um, is Cecilia, Cecilia, can you um, can you um, unmute yourself? And I want to make certain that we understand the question that you're asking. Yeah, let's see here. Yeah, um, let's see if I can get Cecilia. I will say this: the board should reflect the community, and right. if the community is ten percent um, African American or Black, then the board needs to have one member that looks like the community. Um, I know that Cecilia is based in Texas. I know her personally. So there's also a large um, Hispanic community and there should be at least two or three Hispanics on that board. Um, it just has to be diversified. And we also have to make sure women get on the board, not the advisory board. They frankly have no, no power whatsoever. They just talk and the board can choose to listen to them or not. I'm talking about the governing board. It, and most of these foundations want to see demographics of your board members, the gender, the ethnicity, their uh, place in the community, uh, other boards that they sit on, what the role is on your board, how long they've been there, have they contributed financially, annually. And if you have people on the board who are not part of what the nation calls the majority, but we know we're the majority, sorry about that, sidebar, um, with all of that, then they have to be able to show that. They have to be able to demonstrate it. And those people have to have a voice, a place and a seat and not be disrespected or talked down to. How can we educate them? 
by simply saying, I would love to apply for this next grant that you're asking me to write, but I've done my homework and they require an organization that becomes a grantee or recipient of a grant award to have a highly diverse board. So, hmm, I think we're lacking diversity. I love it. I love it. If I could say real quickly, and I love you, Doc, uh, is that she's saying that, well, only three to four percent of the small rural population served by these community nonprofit hospitals is black. And so why would she need to have a black person represented on the board to represent the people we serve? Well, I'm saying that, yes, we need to have all voices represented. So we need to have a person of color on our board. We are um, we do have Hispanics on our board and we do have a lot of women on our board and we have diversity of age and so forth, but we don't have any persons of color as such. And I just resent that and uh, I don't want to lose my job over it. And yet I want to get the message across, you know, so three to 4% rural population. And yet that three to 4% counts. Those are real people with real numbers behind uh, them. Thanks. Cecilia, I do have an idea, but you are risking your job, but I'm gutsy. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, I, would, I think I would just say, Kelvin, to her, uh, to her boss, if I were him, it's 2022. It's darn near 2023. When are we going to change the view and put somebody on this board that represents Black or Indigenous person of color. It's time. Funders expect this. This is the right thing to do. And if this is not in your heart, I'm sorry. I'll pray for you, but I'm also going to ask you to write me a letter of recommendation because I'm going to start looking for another position. Awesome. 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 Thank you, Dr. Bev. You know, the latest tonight, oh, I got one word for both of them. Fire, right? The passion, the excitement, the commitment to community. Dr. Bev, I just want to say thank you for being here tonight. You. you know, Tamika has dropped your information in the chat. I just feel so, so, so connected, so involved, so enlightened just by the many things that were shared. And even though this is our last official show of the uh Season two, we're going to have a few pop-ups come up every now and then. Katie, what do you think about the show tonight? What are your thoughts? Well, number one, um, our friend from PJ's was absolutely inspiring. She was phenomenal, phenomenal. And the story that she told about the little girl that walked into the store and was just so impressed that it was that it was her that owned it. Um, you know, that that's a beautiful story. And it's one of those things we've all got to be mindful of is that we are absolutely setting the course for younger generation. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, it's still actually you can tell it still kind of inspires her. It still kind of gets her excited. Right? I mean, just thinking about that young girl. Right. It reminds me of that young girl watching that um, that painting of a Michelle Obama. Right. She's like, OMG, it's so beautiful. Right. And and Dr. Bev, she just brought it home. She's like, look here, it's time. It's time. And I just love that because it begins to kind of show, you know, how you can get things. Because, you know, sometimes people, they just get extra. They get whatever. But, you know, I just like the way it was presented tonight. So, Katie, this is what we're going to do. We're looking for the chair dancers tonight because, you know, you know, there's been a lot on people's mind. And I know sometimes we can get deep and go whatever. But now we're going to have to. We got the Reverend Al Green. And he said it's going to be all right. Now, Katie, I know you almost understand if I play any music tonight that seem a little bit off, 
Y'all just know it's Katie requested it. It ain't me. But, you know, it's okay. We're going to get through it. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to start in the 70s. And we're going to track back. Oh, thank you, Tamika, for putting in the chat the Cup of Cafe Coffee campaign. Our work is supported by members, supporters, volunteers, exactly like you. How do you know if you should give, if you feel anything tonight that says, wow, OMG, aha, any light bulb moments, then that was not by mistake. It was intentional that we created this experience for you. So our work is definitely 100% supported by supporters like you. So feel free to uh, drop us a donation at our cup of coffee campaign. Tamika put it in the chat and you guys could, um, you can donate once, you can donate multiple times or I teach a podcasting course, so you can um, purchase the class and our podcasting course is actually free and available to people who donate. Thank you for joining us at Southern Soul Livestream Talk Show. Join us weekly at soullivestream.com. If you're joining us live, we'll take a quick music break and then come back for a discussion with the audience.